Welcome, everyone, to the Recruitment and Careers Club podcast. We're joined by the wonderful Dr. Nathalie Martinek, the narcissism hacker, as it were. And before we go into your background, Dr. Nathalie, thank you for joining us. I believe we, we did this interview before, but we had some sound problems, didn't we? We did. Let's hope today is a different experience, although it was a great, let's hope we can recreate it or improve on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for making the time again today. So folks, hopefully the sound comes through loud and clear. We're talking about today narcissism in the workplace. I think before we go into the actual debate and narcissism, I'd love to have your overview of your background to the topic. That'd be great, Dr. Natalie. Yeah. So I'll share a little bit about myself. I'm Natalie and I started off in biological sciences, developmental biology and genetics, and studying how organisms become fully grown. And then I moved into cancer research. And it was really about how our cultures, our environments, the environment, not outside, but the environment on the inside of an organism that holds the cells and tissues that influence their behavior. And so you can imagine when you're studying cancer and seeing how a tumor starts to break out and working out how this is happening, I was looking around me into my own research environment in the institution and seeing a very similar thing with human behavior. And so toxic behaviors and exploitative behaviors seem to be rampant and metastasizing throughout my organization. Thinking about how our conditions and our cultures influence our behavior, I've moved on and ended up in the space 12 years or more later, helping people make sense of the invisible aspects of the culture of their relationships one-on-one, as well as relationships within their workplaces to work out how they might be mistreated or harmed and how they can navigate the uncertainty and complexity of these workplace dynamics to be able to thrive or exit without incurring any further financial reputation or professional injury. So that's a little bit about me. Well, thanks very much for that uh, overview. Um, so I'm going to get straight into the topic. What are narcissists and narcissists? <laughs> okay, so narcissists, it's a word that we hear a lot. It's quite popular these days, and it really describes uh, a person who will take advantage of other people to meet their own needs, whether it's for prestige, status, economics, networks, whatever it is that they believe is really necessary for their survival and success. There's a sense of entitlement that they're worthy and deserving and they're superior, they're better than everyone. And the only needs that matters are theirs. So whatever's yours is theirs. What's mine is theirs. Everything is theirs. And yeah, you're there as a resource. So that's the extreme and summary of narcissism. Now, it's not always obvious. There's people who behave in this way but they do it in a different way. They're not so obvious. They're, they center their victimhood because with people who are termed narcissists, there is always someone to blame for the things that go wrong. So there's an inability to take personal responsibility to consider the impact their behavior has on or their choices have on other people. If you don't like it, that's your problem. It's all about me and what I need and what you could do for me. And if you can't do the things that I need from you, I don't need you then because I matter more. So it's a bit like that. That's a nutshell description of narcissism. And we all have narcissistic traits and they lie across the spectrum, going from very obvious to covert, not very obvious, even almost invisible. You just have to know what to look for. 
Is that enough on narcissism? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to pick up on uh, your point that you said about we all have narcissist traits. And that's fascinating because I don't think the general person would 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 necessarily think like that, would they? Would they feel, oh, I'm not a narcissist. I'm far from a narcissist. But when you actually think logically with what you said, well, and I'm just looking at myself or, or people that I know or uh, individuals that I've worked with, I definitely think that's correct. We all have that trait of narcissism at some point, isn't it? It's whether, is it more that those traits are more recessive traits and they're more in the background rather than they're overtly aggressive and forming the whole person? Whereas a pure narcissist, it's front and centre and, and the be-all of their character. Is, would that be fair? Or The way I talk about narcissism is what I call relational narcissism. Because you don't become exploitative and seek attention all the time and feel entitled to get every need met through other people unless you feel this is necessary for your survival and success. So you might be put in a contextual situation whether it's in a relationship with another person, a workplace, a community, where you start to feel unsafe and you engage in these behaviors in order to feel a sense of belonging and, like I said, meet your needs. And you might do it in a really obvious way where you're going around burning bridges within the same community and everyone knows about you that you have to leave and go find somewhere else to do the same thing pretty much or learn from that experience and not do it again. Or you do it in a really meticulous, systematic, calculating, strategic way where people aren't really onto you so that you can find a way, people's soft spots, their weaknesses, to groom them, to entice them to want to form a relationship, a bond with you, so that eventually you will take advantage of them and extract their resources from them to serve yourself. So again, it depends on your ability to trust other people, your ability to feel safe with other people and feel safe in uncertainty and unknown when things are changing, when you're going through transition. These are the times when we're feeling that destabilized from our status quo, from our day-to-day life, that we might be actually drawing on these, these traits in order to meet our needs because we might be in survival mode. Even though If we look around, we're safe, we have shelter, we have food, we have all our basic needs, but there's something inside of us that's saying, no, that's not enough. I feel threatened and I need to do these things. I need to use all these people to meet my needs. But if I'm narcissistic, I'm not going to be seen. What I'm doing is exploitative. I will see myself as being quite generous to other people and meeting their needs and doing important things that will benefit them. So why shouldn't they want to do these things back for me? So I would have an inability to really check in on the reality that I'm working with because I'm going to construct an idea of myself that I'm quite altruistic and giving and kind and thoughtful and compassionate, whereas that might not be the experiences of other people around me. That's fascinating. And I'm going to ask you something really obvious, actually. The term narcissism, where did it come from? It's Greek, the Greek god of Narcissus, and he's the one who couldn't stop staring at his reflection and I think died because he just (laughs) was obsessed with himself. So really, that's where it comes from, this self-obsession, this sense that only I matter. I am the center of my own universe and everyone has to revolve around me. And you will do things according to my schedule, my timeline, and my needs, basically. 
and you will always center me and you will always give me attention and affection because I'm the best thing there is. Yeah, and, and I that, hope that, nobody listens to this yeah. and thinks, oh my God, Natalie's so full of herself. Far from it. I, I actually, I remember the last time we chatted and you talked about the program, the, the Tinder Swindler, and that was a fascinating watch. And he, would I be right in saying, fits the definition of a classic narcissist? I'm not going to sit here and diagnose anyone, but if you look at the, the cycle of abuse, of attachment and abuse that has been highlighted in the show with the three different women, it follows a very specific order of events. And I've written about this, the six kind of stages or steps in the narcissism playbook to attract or recruit the right people so that you form an emotional bond quite rapidly and eventually extract their resources until they're depleted and they you no longer have a use for them, you discard them and move on. So it does fit that description, except... He didn't work alone. So when we're talking about narcissism and individuals, again, I like to talk about it's relational. It's contextual. It doesn't just happen on its own. There there has to be conditions in place that cause this to happen. So you would have to think about how was this man raised as what was his influences growing up? How did his parents, father, mother, another authority figure in his life model ethics model their values that he internalized and used to become who he is now and who in his life has he recruited to continue to enable this because on a level they're getting something out of it too so they are also employing highly narcissistic traits to meet their needs through him yeah it's fascinating because i was watching it and i was at first thinking where's the swindle here because for the, those of you who haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. It's one of the most documentaries uh, I've ever seen. In fact, if someone put it as a book, you'd, you'd probably think, oh, no, that it wouldn't get commissioned because it seemed too far-fetched. And when I, looking back and whilst watching that program, it, it felt, okay, so he's going to five-star hotels and he comes along and he's all suited and he's got all the best kind of clothes, all designer labels, shoes, belts, name it. And what he does, for, for everyone listening, he utilizes his Instagram, isn't it? He's got an Instagram following. And he's very clever because he's got over 100,000 followers and he's got that blue tip, which says that it's someone of public note. And he takes everything to the extreme in terms of how professional he is with what he does in terms of everybody Googles nowadays. So when he's um, approaching on uh, Tinder or actually they're approaching him and you do that swipe kind of function and they check him on Instagram, they think, oh, that must be legit because he's got all these followers and he's got all these pictures of him in, in amazing places and on jets and parties. And then they check him up on Google. And yes, he is this billionaire son of a diamond merchant who's got over a billion uh, dollars and they think oh my word and I suppose what you said earlier about how narcissists are quite clever at filtering and picking on certain individuals to fit what they want to get out of them and I think some of the success that he had in befriending these women was that each one of them were wanting the they were in love with the whole idea of what he represented the fancy restaurants the amazing holidays he's almost like prince charming has come along is going to sweep them off their feet and oh my word aren't i lucky and he befriends them for over a month doesn't he 
and they and he's the one spending money on them he's the one uh winning their trust over and they feel like he's the real deal and he says things like i love you and you're the one for me and gets them to look at uh, trying to get a flat in covent garden and all of that kind of thing and then is where the sting comes in and where the swindle comes in after a month and is that classic in terms of winning someone's trust over that they're very yeah. clever in taking their time because they understand that if they do it too quickly people will soon suss them out almost because it happens quickly it actually happens rapidly with high intensity that's where the bonding comes in because of everything you've just said they've done the first step in the playbook which is construct an illusion of power so like you said had his whole identity plastered all over the internet so anyone looking him up would see he's this high flyer billionaire son doing all these great things so people who are attracted to that level of materialism or that lifestyle that's who he's catching in his in his fishing net and then all he had to do was go on tinder to narrow the search so the ones who he approves of and they approve of him there's a match and then he gets to meet them and basically he's seeing if they're going to be the kind of person that he's going to take advantage of but i don't think him and if we think about a workplace context someone recruiting for a job i don't think people go into it going i'm going to take advantage of them there are people who do that but that's not the sense of what i see because he believes he's the one giving mm. he's the one spending he's the one doing all the hard work declaring his love opening up being vulnerable so from his perspective He's being open and honest, truthful and trying to find people he can trust because he's been through life and screwed over that he can't trust people so it's a gift if he trusts you. That's the perspective that I that I see. But what they're doing is constructing an illusion of reality, this fantasy. So people who like that kind of fantasy will be attracted to that. That's what they're looking for. And then when they encounter each other for the first time, the purpose is to quickly form a strong emotional bond with that person and they use three strategies which i call that i call grooming one is focused attention so you can zone in on them show tons of interest make them feel special you compliment them their attributes their intellect their whatever attributes they have with them and that person will also be paying attention to the things that they say and showing interest in what they're saying even if they're not interested in it they will make that person feel really special the second thing is the love bombing so giving a lot of gifts time energy money elaborate whisking off on a private jet to some other country for an adventure in a luxury hotel so lots of extravagant gifts extravagant compliments opportunities introducing to your exclusive network so exclusive gatherings so you feel again special but it's a lot of that generosity that giving and the third bit is intimacy so you have this again this focused time together where they can continue to i don't know insert these narratives about who they are they keep reinforcing that fantasy that constructed identity to also test out if the person that they're with is buying these stories so they can see if that person's going to be loyal and that's what they're doing they're doing a testing and if they pass the first loyalty test boom they get some sort of reward for it so more love bombing gifts or intimacy whatever it is that that they want but the thing to be clear about is the person who is say narcissistic here is dominant they are the one driving the entire thing it is completely up to them but and the person is hooked and they're swept along 
on this ride. They're on this train that they're not in control over, but they might be convinced that they're in control, but they're swept up into the fantasy because this is what they want. They're looking for a savior. They're looking to fill a void. And that person is meeting the descriptions of their fantasy of success. And then there's four more steps, but I'll stop there. And so if you think about a workplace, similar things could be happening, but more of a professional context. So again, a person, a new person could be elevated to position of privilege for some skill set that they have. And that person will be played against all the other people on the team who might have been there longer because this person is being elevated to either drive a competitiveness and a productivity among the rest of the team, but also that person is serving a particular purpose for that manager, leader, whoever is elevating them so they can extract what they need from them down the line. That's fascinating. And he really does professionalize the swindle. It's his job. It really is. And with people like that, or people you find in the workplace that have these narcissism qualities, you talk about how winning, you know, trust over and befriending and filtering. Would you say then they have high levels of EQ in, in awareness of putting themselves in the position of their victim or who they want to subjugate? I think, I don't think they do. If we're talking about, are we talking, so we're talking about emotional intelligence. Yeah. Emotional I think they're good yeah. at reading people's body languages right. and how to get them to trust them and open up and relax. So they've figured out how to do that so that people are more likely to trust them because ultimately forming an emotional bond is to for trust to form because once you trust someone it's quite hard to to break that trust unless you obviously betraying them but he continues to gaslight them this narrative so it keeps that bond strengthened and sustained so when things start to happen when the drama kicks in and the minefield the bomb goes off they still have a hard time like being challenged by that they still feel like that person trusts them and needs them and they want to be there for them. That's more important than pausing and going, wait a minute, if they're a son of a billionaire, why the hell are they asking me for money? What is this? With emotional intelligence, they would be able to read body language and know what they would need to do because it's been tried and tested on how to uh, get people to open up. And the ones who don't do that, well, they dismiss them. That's not their target. They only want the ones who will submit to them. Yeah. We look at things like even entrepreneurs. They're very good at hacking the human psyche uh, and the psychology of how it works. Like, So they'll do things like really play on scarcity with their offering. You need to sign up now. If you don't sign up now, the offer is going to be taken away in the next few days. Um, mm. If you really want to be rich, you're going to do this today. What's the matter with you? This is why you, you're, you're in a rut as it is because you're not doing these things. And they almost either bully or they play on that. They've got a good awareness, even though they haven't maybe officially been a psychologist or in that field at all. They have understood the psyche of their victims or who they want to prey upon very well in terms of how what drives the human psychology. Mm. And that awareness really gets them where they want to get to in terms of their net of the people they want to get into that net, whether it's an offering of a product or a service or whether it's that Tinder swindler example. But they don't have any remorse, do they, Dr. Nathalie? When we're talking about the Tinder swindler, I didn't get the sense that remorse was unavailable <laughs> yeah. there because he just kept going because he blames everyone. How dare you? I'm disappointed in you after everything I've given you. 
the world owes me a living because I can't be great for everyone unless you pay me. Everyone's his bank account. We should be grateful that he exists in the world and we should be paying him for his continued existence and awesomeness. Yeah, remorse needs to be there for someone to want to change, to be motivated to change Uh because they feel upset that they actually harmed one or many people, but you don't get that sense from that person. That's not to say people who engage in narcissistic behaviors don't feel remorse. If they realize that they've hurt someone and it affects them, where they feel that remorse and shame might lead to a desire to change. Not always, you hope. But with people who rely on these traits to survive and get ahead, they you hear a lot, they don't, people who are narcissistic don't have empathy or they lack empathy. Again, empathy is also not just a on-off switch. It's a spectrum. So you can have empathy in some regard and not others. Like it's deeply compromised. And again, why would we be compromised in empathy is because we've been betrayed over and over during early years in life and other parts, other times in life. And we haven't done a repair process to heal from that betrayal or the person who hurt us hasn't repaired. So we go through life feeling distrustful and also resentful. And we want to get what we can from other people because I got screwed over and I can't allow myself to ever be, to put myself in a position again. But what I'll do is do that, the same thing that happened to me, to someone else, and I'll have a justification. So people who engage in these traits are very good at performing uh, cognitive empathy. So they know how to relate with other people and communicate in ways that convince the other person that they're empathic, that they can be in their shoes and really understand them. But it's just performative. It's just a, a survival skill to be able to connect with people to get what you need from them. It's not necessarily authentic where you actually feel what somebody is feeling or what you can imagine someone else's experience without having to go through it. You can imagine what it might be like for them, how they're living with their circumstances. You can appreciate what they're doing to be able to survive and fulfill, have meaning, fulfill their their goals without ever having gone through through it yourself. But with people like that, they're only interested in those who are interested in the story they're great storytellers. So they're only interested in those who are interested in the constructed reality. And that's it because the people who they're interested in are the ones who are interested in that stuff. Whether it's a contrepreneur or a sexual exploiter, same thing. Different outcomes, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they seem to weaponize emotional intelligence, even though they're not actually feeling it authentically, but they know that's what the person that they're talking to or uh, selling to or trying to persuade is wanting to hear that they're, they're very mm-hmm. well versed with that when it comes to leadership obviously it's such an important part to any company the people at the top because the people at the top tend to form the culture of organizations whether it's a startup disruptor or a multinational uh, company there is a culture as such but a lot of it does come from the top to the downwards in how that culture either manifests or how it develops how it evolves. And one of the major reasons why people leave their place of work is because of toxic work cultures. Toxicity is a narcissism or narcissistic leaders has a big influence within toxicity and toxic work cultures. I think three to 4% of CEOs fit the definition of a psychopath, for example. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, so. The toxic the culture is dictated from the top down in across many industries, all industries. 
And if you have leaders, those who are setting the tone of what is permissible, what is what are the norms of a culture, then if it's permissible to yell at other employees when they made a mistake, then other people will pick up on it and go, this is okay. Because every time I that person tries to tell that leader not to yell at them, they just, <laughs> you can give feedback without yelling. They're going to find themselves out on their ass uh, because no one tells the narcissistic leader how to do their job and how to conduct themselves with other people. So they decide and it's not a conscious decision. You hear, you read the workplace policies, you read the manifestos and mission statements and our values, but what the problem is, these are all aspirational. It You have to work hard to actually turn these values into practice. And to do that, you have to become aware of all the barriers to demonstrating these, these values in a way that can be modeled and experienced by the people in the workplace. Otherwise, you can have these great values, but what you'll end up seeing are just the toxic behaviors, which are exploitative, taking advantage of other people, like making them, asking them to, to work longer hours, even though they're only there nine to five, but it becomes the norm that everyone does that, doesn't get paid for it because it's for greater purpose or you want to stand out, you want to have that promotion, you need to be competitive. So those are the things that become normal, even though they weren't in the job description, they weren't in the values, there wasn't in the policy, and they sometimes go against policy. So it's hard work to override our way of being normally in groups when there's already a culture established of these particular norms and rules and what's permissible to override the toxicity. And I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's, it's great points because most organizations will say we're an investor in people, our people come first, we're all about this, well-being, mental health. And I always say that's all well and good. It's good PR and good talent acquisition strategies, but behind all the kind of rhetoric, what is it really like in terms of the substantive and the actions behind the talk? Because the talk is cheap and there is a lot of tokenism with many of these jumping on the bandwagons. And Historically, certain sectors suffered more from a toxic workplace, which involved narcissistic leaders. So I'm going to give you some examples. Lehman Brothers, the ex-CEO there, there's some videos of him displaying quite narcissistic behaviours and, like you said, allowing very dubious behaviours that were permissible. Even the film the Wolf of Wall Street and what was going on there as well, for any of you who have watched this, it's a fascinating uh, film with DiCaprio. And we used, we used to have a guy called Fred the Shred, he was named, and he was the ex-CEO of Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, which was at one point the world's biggest bank. And it was one day short of running out of money with the subprime mortgage crisis around 2008 period before the government bailout. And it was alleged that uh, Fred the Shred, Fred Goodwin, used to basically go into meetings and he would just fire people. And there was one particular instance where he was at a work event and the person brought the wrong biscuits that what he's used to. And he told someone who reported into him to, to then tell someone else, fire her. And that was the culture. It was almost like greed is good. It's all about the individual. It's uh, permissible to do all these kind of things. They were mm. cutting corners around regulations. They were saying in one breath, oh, we need to do that because that's what we need to do. And another breath, 
in terms of the, the the commission side and the deals. You need to do this and you need to do that with the customer. So it was a competing conflict of playing up to the narrative and the tokenism or the regulation, and then the reality of what it was actually like for people working there that were dealing with the cold face and the customers of what they were being told and dictated to. Imagine what it was like for all the employees there. So they have they get exposed to this behavior and, and these rule-breaking and unethical conduct there, and then they'll be on edge. They'd be hypervigilant. They would not be there would not be a relaxed muscle in their body. They would be on edge. And when you're on edge, you can't think because you're always worried about when you're going to get fired. You're in a con- constant state of insecurity. You don't want to screw up. So you're going to be, you know, perfectionist. So it's going to enhance all these behaviors that are actually narcissistic. Can't do no wrong. Can't always have to be able to, you know, prove yourself. Might mean you have to throw your colleague of 10 years under the bus so that you come out ahead. You are prepared to do these cutthroat things because you become the culture. Because your survival, you decided your survival and your sense of security or your identity or something's at stake, high enough at stake that you're prepared to forego your ethics and some of your, your morality to be able to fit in and do what's required. And then you still have to have a nice smiley face and, and meet your customers with all that stuff going on. Like then you go home. And you can't look at yourself in the mirror because of what you've had to do to transgress or violate your morals if you had them in the first place. You won't be bothered in an environment like that if you're already compromised empathically because it suits you just fine and you're going to thrive in an environment like that. That's perfect for you. And you're going to get up there and get promoted as long as you're not comp- seen as competitive with the leader, that you're seen as like the, the sycophant and the suck up um, and give enough good things to get yourself noticed and promoted, but you'll be providing the good things that other people on your team did and just passing it off as your own. And these are the cultures and environments that promote this kind of underhanded, undermining, exploitative behavior. Yeah, so it's not going to be healthy for anyone in there. Yeah, absolutely. And do narcissists appear straight away, Dr. Nathalie, or does it take a course of time for, for that personality to come out. Well, again, when we're talking about nurses, I'm not going to be the one going, I can diagnose because <laughs> no, it's not how it works. Not for me anyway. <laughs> Other people will do that. But you can tell the behaviors just with the, the list that I gave earlier, the very first grooming, the early stages. So a person will come across as quite well, well put together. They're well-spoken, say in a workplace environment, they'll come across as warm and funny and charming, engaging. That's not to say your hair should stand up, but (laughs) that's okay. They're more likely to, you know, convince you to be safe with them because they are performing these safe behaviors, engaging, they make you feel like you're included, you belong, you're special, even if they're not love bombing you right away. But once you start noticing that they're paying extra attention to you, over other people and you're starting to notice a difference, those are red flags already. Unless you convince yourself, I have more education than the rest of the people and I have more of this or I've earned this. You're convincing yourself as to why they're showing favor, they're treating you like their favorite. Then you've already been groomed. Yeah. So a lot of people who've been groomed don't know that they've been groomed. So true. And would you say they're master manipulators then? Maybe not master, some might be, but they're good at making you feel special so that you 
seek that out on a regular basis from them. And they give that to you for a short period of time knowing, and they feel good about it because they're you're giving some signals back to them that you're appreciating them. You're making them feel good about their actions towards you. So there's this kind of weird exchange going on, but you're seeking that validation and eventually becomes this addiction where you're wanting it and they're going to be, especially when they're withdrawing it and starting to show it to other people. Yeah. And they start doing that when you've done the wrong thing and you may not know when or how you've done the wrong thing, but you betrayed them. You were disloyal. You didn't fulfill their expectations. They may not tell you what those expectations were in the first place, but somehow you failed and they're moving on. And so you're stuck with this addiction and now confusion because whatever you were doing before that was getting you praise and attention is now getting you criticism and rejection. Yeah, that's an example of how your emotions can be manipulated. And you mentioned about red flags and for anyone listening to this and they're thinking, am I working for a narcissistic leader or in a work environment, which is basically giving the green light to narcissistic behaviors? What are the red flags of narcissism? within the workplace that one could look out for and, and check? Again, it's the extra niceness towards you or other people, and you really haven't done anything. And it has, so if you've just started in a workplace and you're getting a lot of attention, that's normal if you're the new person and that's the culture. But if you start to become made the favorite, then you, of course, will like that. Who doesn't like something like that unless something like that makes you feel uneasy because you're like, why am I getting all this attention? What about all the other team? There's good stuff going on here. So when you start to feel like you're in a situation and you're being made to feel good and after a short period of time, you come away from an encounter with that person feeling ashamed of yourself, feeling quite small, diminished, imposter syndrome, something's not right there. There's something going on in that dynamic that is polluting your psyche so that you no longer feel the same level of confidence or competence that you did a few weeks ago when you started or when you were engaged in a project. So there's something going on that you need. That's a red flag. It's not because you're incompetent. It's not because you might be upskilling and you're going through this growth phase of new learning. I think the difference when you're going through the new learning phase versus feeling shit about yourself every time you've had an encounter with a specific person, whether it's happened on email or verbally, something's not right there. Yeah, fascinating. So those are early, early mm. kind of red flags because the later red flags where you might be the victim of bullying, that's already too late. Mm-hmm. But what I'm talking about here is preventing something that could turn into bullying later on. If you are put in a position where you're made to feel special a lot, and it'd be a good idea to question, why do I need to be made to feel special? I'm okay with myself or I'm good enough with myself. Is this happening with other people? What happens? When does it stop happening? What causes that to stop happening? (laughs) We all like to feel special, but we don't need to get that from our workplaces. If we're seeking that from our workplaces, then we will be groomed and we'll go through this cycle of toxic dynamic and we could be recruiting other people or being recruited as some sort of ploy with other people. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think that they constantly push the boundaries? Like, for example, someone might be knocking off work, uh, they're ready to go home and they say, oh, could you just do this other thing for me? And it seems to be a pattern where they keep pushing it and pushing it. Yes. So as soon as you say, so if you have, you come into workplace, your boundaries, I clock off at five o'clock because my family life matters, my yoga class matters, my whatever time for myself matters. 
So you got to stick with that because the culture and you look around to see are people sticking behind? What are the justifications they're giving? Then you're out the door and someone goes, oh, we have to send this in by tomorrow. Would you mind staying back quickly to do this? You got to go now. I mind. I got to go. But you would feel reluctant to do that if you see other people around you. That's the cultural norm, but it's implied. It's not explicit. There's no rule book anywhere, but you see it. That's the thing about culture. Most of the things are unsaid. They're unwritten. They're the rules that you feel because that's what's being modeled around you. It's the hidden culture. And so you feel like you'll have to stay back because then you're going to seem like the slacker on the team and you don't want to be the slacker on the team. So it's all this, these mind tricks that are going on already without even a conversation. And you then might go, okay, there's a precedent of what is now normal. And you will have to then justify why you can't do it the next time you're asked. You stay back that time when you had to go. This is no big deal. So can you stay? And you have to be really strong and say, I did it that once because that was my role. I'll do it just this once. And that's it. We need need to get better with time management. Let's talk about that tomorrow. Yeah, I, I, I totally relate to this because in the sales world, which recruitment fundamentally is, and any results-based business where it's it's you're basically judged upon your results as opposed to your effort, it was this culture of people didn't want to be the first to leave the sales floor. So when it was the time to, to leave your work, maybe it's 5.30 or 6.30, whatever it is, you could feel this underlying tension and then the, whoever was first, there used to be people go, ah, lightweight, slacker. And it might be funny in terms of banter where everybody's laughing, but everyone had this innate feeling of pressure that they couldn't be seen as the first one to leave on time, on the dot, especially from the bosses above. They were sitting on an open plan sales floor looking out suddenly the conversation would go to the team leader and think, oh, that Dan left early. How's he doing? Is he hitting target? And it was, and you feel it. You would feel it. So I totally relate to that. And yeah. it's those like unwritten rules that you mentioned. Yeah. And how do you, and how do you go as, you know, a member of that team? Well, Dan knows his priorities. Maybe we should be following suit. Dan's setting a really great example for us all. Why are we still here? Yeah. The and It's still going to be there tomorrow. And I think we've got better because I've been in the world of recruitment now for nearly a quarter of a century. And in the mid nineties to early two thousands, there wasn't this kind of mental health, well-being, work-life balance. It was like, if you want to make it, you'll put the effort in. And if you don't, there's plenty more people that will come into your situation. And you were made to feel almost like guilty or you weren't quite adequate enough, or you didn't want it enough because I used to always try to push back and say, look, I don't want people just to scroll and pretend they're working at the computer just to fit into this culture of looking like they're staying late. I want people Mm -hmm. that are productive, that are doing the work that they need and actually feeling emancipated. They'll go above and beyond rather than this pretense of this Mm -hmm. illusion of staying back. And I think there's now a disconnect with some, even with some really big, personalities i know one of which on dragon's den from uh, an employee of his who said that he was very old school even and that his perception of someone working hard or really fitting the culture that he had was somebody who was staying late and if they left early that means they weren't really doing their job 
so ridiculous. These You see these logical fallacies. If you stay late, you are more productive rather than, no, you slacked off during the day and you're trying to make up <laughs> what you didn't do to save face because there's something about the nine to five that doesn't really work for a lot of people. Maybe we need to think about that. And I know flexibility with working has happened over the last two years with COVID, but a lot of people seem to go back to that same old saying as, oh, we're back to normal or something. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And it takes a good leader to be able to notice what's not working. Mm. Like, why aren't we productive? Why are we not meeting our targets or exceeding our targets? What do we need to do that doesn't burn us out more, that doesn't demand? What are the inefficiencies? What's getting in the way? What do we need to remove and replace with instead? Those conversations are necessary instead of just expecting people to come in and get into the stodgy, stagnant culture where only some people can thrive because it works for their personality type, but not others who are also very talented though. So you don't get the best out of everyone because you've just stuck a mold and expect everyone to conform to it and expect that everyone's going to be able to exceed, excel in those circumstances. That's not human nature. It's not how it works. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been studies on social media, right, where some researchers have argued or studies have stated that the rise and rise of social media has coincided with a rise in narcissism. And if you think about the way uh, social media works, you have followers rather than just connections on most platforms, which feeds the ego. Then you're looking at things like likes and uh, comments, which again feeds that ego, a sense of self. But is it also the case that with social media, that it's been the best thing for a narcissist? Because it's like that feel that they want, they, they can show off those narcissistic qualities better than they've ever done before? Yeah, there's more outlets for somebody to be able to expose themselves and get attention. Instead of Facebook in 2006 or whatever, we've got so many other ways to <laughs> invite attention and entice people to want to connect with us. So I think there's the positive, negative of all of that, but definitely provides an outlet for people who really love attention and to do different things that meet, feed that need, but it also maintains an addiction that that is tied up with their self-worth, that if they don't get the likes or comments or they get pushed back on something that they've written, they still might like that they got attention, even if it's negative attention. But if they don't get it, then their egos are take a hit and it could take that person down. And then they try harder to, to get attention and just causes some really dysregulating behavior. So yeah, not for everyone, but yeah, I've seen it. I've seen that. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah. With celebrities as well. You're already famous. You're already exposed all over the place and you have social media and this is what you're doing on it. Wow. <laughs> it's so true. And we're in the era of the personal brand more and more. So the traditional employee models die and you're either going to be an entrepreneur or entrepreneur and there is, and social media and digital channels are going to, they are so integral now in every single workplace in terms of being online and all of that kind of stuff. So it's more and more prevalent and more and more critical when it comes to all these things. I'm just thinking when it comes to all of this at the end, do we have a situation whereby people that rise to the top in their field, so say, for example, celebrities, would they by definition 
all be narcissists or is that just so blanket that he can't possibly be argued? For example, you have Rafael Nadal in tennis. He's a great, has won more Grand Slams than anybody else, but he's so humble. So is it more you can't judge someone because by virtue of what they do in terms of being a celebrity and automatically think, well, they must be narcissists because they're, it's all about them and it's more what they do outside of what their chosen professional trade is? I think it's apples and oranges when you're comparing sports, ind- individual sport to, say, Hollywood success um, or in- success in the entertainment industry because you can't fake being a good tennis player. You either are or you aren't. You're going to slay your opponents consistently and the way you conduct yourself, gentleman has a lot of grace. So that's going to get certain kinds of following and attention and sponsorship, etc. But it's because of his talent, his skill, his level of mastery of tennis. Whereas entertainment industry, very different set of factors that allow someone to rise. It's not necessarily because they're talented. It might be how they've infiltrated those networks and leveraged certain relationships to get to where they need to be. There's a ton of talented thespians out there, but a lot of them won't rise to the top because maybe they're not narcissistic enough or they haven't learned how to do the marketing personal branding game or getting the right supports to help elevate them. It's It requires, I think, a team effort versus yourself. And same with tennis. You can't enter into this field without already having financial support. It's, it's still an elite level sport profession if you want to make that your professional life. But if we look at everyday folks in working in whatever workplaces, they would have to be quite careful with their social media use and how they present themselves to the world. Because if they piss off the wrong people, those people can go and complain about them in their workplaces, as we've seen done, and they get fired. Or their workplaces could see their tweets and the racist tweet has lost that person their job, at least publicly. We don't know what happens actually behind the scenes as damage control. There's a lot of that narcissism that the organization is doing because they have a reputation to protect. And that's ultimately everything that feeds into being able to sustain their economic success. So they're not going to want to jeopardize that because some employee was careless with their social media. So there's narcissism everywhere. It's not just a human thing. Organizations, institutions, systems can be also all about themselves and how they can exploit other people to meet their needs. So this is why when we enter into workplaces, all great that we see their values and their policies, but if it's capitalist corporate thing, their values or their priorities can be very different to yours where you're then because you're entering the workplace. Yes, you're getting paid for your job, but that's not your priority. Maybe feeling a sense of accomplishment is your priority or career development or professional development or connections is your priority. That's not the organization's priority. So you're going to already have a mismatch. So it's great that you can come in and the organization could say this matters, but ultimately they're going to show you what matters. And bottom line matters more than anything, not for all institutions, obviously, but it's hard. It's hard to make this nice mix of making people matter as well as being able to meet your economic demands and and for profit and expansion. It takes a lot of care to do that in a way that doesn't exploit the people in the process. Yeah, it's true. And the distinction is a good one between celebrity and and, and sport. The only one example I can give at the top of my head of fitting that narcissistic or narcissism type definition is 
Cristiano Ronaldo. He's really good at football, but he opened up a museum in Portugal, which was all about Cristiano Ronaldo. Amazing. Yeah. He's doing us all a service. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's made all our lives better. Yes. That godlike <laughs> syndrome. So as we're winding into the finishing lane, are there differences between male and female narcissists or is it more likely for males to be narcissistic than females have we seen any kind of studies on that i'm not familiar i'm sure there are studies out there but i don't really read them because i read some but i think also because the way narcissism is described it misses the nuances and subtleties and looks for certain recognizable level where i look for the behaviors, the consistent behaviors that are red flags behaviors that others might not see as narcissistic because they're quite familiar because this is these are the behaviors that we are accustomed to because we've grown up with them. So they feel normal and familiar, not narcissistic when they are in fact exploitative and taking advantage of people, starting in the family, because that's where we learn these behaviors. That's where that's what gets modeled to us by our family and other authority figures in our life. So in terms of male and female, if we look at the workplace, I'll ask you, who are the original builders of corporations? Males. Who were they? Yeah. Did they have an idea in mind that someday women would be coming in and taking over when they got established? So when women started to come in, can you imagine what women would have experienced coming into these more male-dominated places? What would they have had to do in order to be taken seriously? to be able to be competitive and to be able to be have um, decent career progression. You can imagine they would have had to work a lot harder than their male counterparts because, again, they're new. They're, we can't trust you because you're new. We don't understand. There's lots of things. So you can imagine that in order for women to be able to be successful in these contexts, there would have to be a need to shift behaviors to be competitive, to be more masculine, to be taken more seriously, to even change their voice, the way they dress. So, you know, the power suits, which are awesome anyway, I like them, but uh, <laughs> but you can understand this kind of evolution and yeah. how that can cause a whole generations of women to change their behaviors in ways to have to succeed, to be competitive, be taken seriously, and to be able to lead. And, and there still isn't this equality in, in many in, across all the industries. So we're still not there yet. And women are still going through the same sort of crap. The way narcissism looks, there could be similarities that maybe not as obvious because maybe the stereotypes we hold about women is that because they're more emotional or they're more emotionally attuned or empathic, we wouldn't expect that women would be manipulative and do underhanded things. But of course, women are capable of doing these things. But we also have to look at why are, why might they need to be done in a workplace it's because this is what is required in some context to be successful in it and to meet their successful their, their goals of success. And I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying it's understandable how these behaviors will have to come out in order to get their needs met. Yeah, my final two questions, and it's true what you said in that example, and it's overcoming toxic masculinity that you know was an issue. And I'd like to think workplaces have become much more evolved and better as generations have come up through the ranks with all of that. Are there good and bad narcissists? Again, not going to the narcissistic personality diagnoses. I think there are people all along a spectrum of behaviors that can be quite harmful, but not be perceived as narcissistic. Although I don't, I could see 
I don't see how they couldn't. If you're someone who's doing harm to someone else, causing someone to experience trauma through your behaviors and actions, then you've got some issues whether you're narcissistic or not. I think whenever, when I think about narcissism, someone is always dominating and exploiting. It's just when they're reenacting a familiar pattern with someone else and it's a familiar pattern to them, they may not realize that they're actually in a cycle of abuse because it's so familiar that it's safe and comfortable even, or comfort in in the discomfort because it's familiar. In that sense, whenever we're in a situation where being dominated by someone um, and taken advantage of, it's never going to be a good thing. But I don't like to label people as good and bad. We have to think about the relational context and what drew, drew me to you and what were my expectations of you? What were your expectations of me? What role have I started to play and reenact with you as you're doing that with me? How are we both contributing to this weird situation that we find ourselves in that will ultimately cause one of us to be exploited and have our resources, which is our money, our time, our energy, our our emotions to be extracted by the other person so that they can take off and do whatever they need and repeat it again. So the difference between healthy relationships is there's a give and receive and narcissistic relationship is a give and take. One person's doing a lot of giving but they're feeling maybe they're benefiting until they're not. And the other one just takes, take, takes. But the way they think they give, like the example we said at the beginning with Tinder Swindler, they're, you know, showing all this generosity, but it's to form a bond that will ultimately cause the ex- this extraction process to occur from the, in the other person. So it's just harmful versus unharmful. is <laughs> maybe a, healthy, a helpful way to look at it. Yeah. It's interesting that because would a narcissist even go there in terms of diagnosis? Because don't they perceive that they're more important, they know more, they're better than other people? Would they even get to that point and think, well, I'm not going there, I'm not that, I'm better than that. I'm better than the person Uh, diagnosing me. Yeah, yeah, and that might still be the case once they get the diagnosis, the confirmation of their narcissism. For anyone to want to go down that path and get the diagnosis, there would need to be some sort of benefit so that they don't lose that thing that they believe is important for their success and to attain or preserve this fantasy that they've constructed about themselves, their identity, which is not a fantasy for them. It's their reality. So there needs to be an incentive to do anything outside of the norm for them, for that person. And sometimes it could be your inheritance is balancing on you going and getting mental health support. So that's an example. Or you're in a workplace and it's a high-flying workplace and the boss says, hey, or whatever, there's a staff psychologist, I don't know, making this up. But (laughs) there's some sort of process that has occurred because that person has breached policy a number of times and you don't want to fire them because they have some talents that are really beneficial for the organization. But to follow certain policies, to enforce the policy, they need to be getting anger management with therapeutic support. So maybe then that's the way, that's the workplace policy and the process that gets them into that situation where they would get assessed and then diagnosed. But with many people, I'll never say people are incapable of change. They have to want change and they need to be surrounded by people who can support the repair of the distrust that is sitting inside them from all those unhealed wounds from their past experiences. The only way we can heal the distrust is through our relationships because the betrayals occurred in relationships. So we need relationship with people who could see through our 
bullshit that we could learn to trust and feel safe with over time. And that's how we heal and we start to have the ability to change because we are then more likely to gain some self-awareness and want to reflect on our experiences and reflect on the impacts of our action. But I don't know how common that is, how frequent that is, but I won't write anyone off. Yeah, or they have an in-house psychologist like they did in the, <laughs> the series Billions on Sky Atlantic with that yeah. hedge fund. Yeah. And my final question, can narcissistic leaders achieve greatness? I guess it depends on your definition of greatness mm. or their definition. Whose definition of greatness? What is the definition we're working with? Because if greatness means that they take that company to new levels of wealth unforeseen by previous leaders, you go great, right for the company because they've achieved their goals. But at what cost? Who was sacrificed? Who was exploited? Who was extorted? What, what, what resources got drained? And that includes your human resources in order to meet that goal. In that sense, it's great for the company, but not great for everyone who got screwed over um, by it. And then you would have to ask yourself, was it worth it? So what? More money? What are you going to do with it? Yeah. World domination. You have to compete with all the other bazillionaires who want world domination. It's true. Sometimes they can uh, really create huge change because they've got this unblinkered vision that their vision is the best vision and this narcissism that's driving them forwards that they feel like, you know, their destiny or whatever it is, their entitlement is here and they can break. And you see it within the tech world at times and or you see it with disruptors. And also in it, they can go to the, they can reach levels that may be beyond others because of this narcissism driving them. So this good and bad example that we talked about, the bad examples of narcissism that have reached the very top in whatever field, say politics, for example, which seems to attract a few. Not Donald Trump it, it can fit possibly the definition of narcissism. Adolf Hitler, you know, uh, Joseph Stalin, maybe. People that did terrible things, not Donald Trump, terrible things. Um, uh, those other examples of terrible things like Adolf Hitler and, and Joseph Stalin, where their narcissism drove them to that nth degree of their, their sense of entitlement of place in history or what their superiority or whatever it might be. So it's, it's fascinating how we can achieve sometimes good for the wider society, even though them as a person are narcissists, but it's delivered huge, maybe technological change and revolution by consequence enabled all our lives. It might be through the use of a smartphone or whatever it might be. And at the extreme, caused huge suffering amongst people because of this ideological prism that's been driven by a narcissist. Yeah, with the Hitler example, all the examples you gave, none of these men operated alone. They were elevated by a group of people. There were many involved in listening to the propaganda, believing it and transmitting it broadly. So they couldn't have done it without the support. You think one person can just command a whole millions of people to be exterminated. No, it took an entire big group of people, enough of a group of people to believe in this thing. It was feeding their own wounds and narcissists. We won't even go into the pathology, the psychopathology of this group of people. And with every, again, accomplishment or innovation, yes, there are things that cause progress. And I use that because has it made us better people? Have we become kinder, more ethical? As a result of these things, is that what maybe that's not its purpose, but also think about what are the unintended consequences. So we know about the mining of minerals and how it's causing stability in parts of Africa, Asia, and the waste 
of all the old iPhones and this whole pollution problem around this stuff. So it's great that we have these things, but they're also unintended, unforeseen or unintended consequences of this, which is the organizations that corporations, not their business, but it is the responsibility. Because if you put it together, if you bring it into the world, you also have to consider all the things you're going to have to do to manage the waste as a result of it. And how well have they done that? So <laughs> while we're looking at to elevate the greatness of the mind and what can be accomplished, also not alone, it happens with people. Maybe just one person's getting the claim, but it did require a group of people to make that happen. And all the ideation phases that occurred that led up to um, that final product that got launched and got the acclaim of that one person. What were the... Yeah, what were the shitty things that happened along the way that we're not hearing so much about? And why aren't we? Because we're always looking for heroes. We love our saviors. We have an addiction to the stuff. And I think that's something that we as a species could be looking at and reflecting on and trying to stop maybe. So that's my downer ending. (laughs) It's so true. I I think people will only go so far for themselves, but people do the craziest things for an idea of whether it be religion, whether it be politics, whether it be something, they'll do the most craziest things. But for yourself, you'll only go so far. Um, thank you ever so much for this wonderful uh, discussion that we've had. How do we best contact you for those uh, people that are maybe going through toxic work cultures or working for narcissistic leaders or maybe work colleagues or in personal relationships? What's the best prism to reach you in terms of your direct channels? Yeah, I can be contacted through my website, Dr. Natalie, with an H in it, drnataliemartinet.com. You can also find me as the Narcissism Hacker. Just do a Google search and you'll find my Substack, which is where I put out a lot of articles, a lot of pieces about relational narcissism and how this might play out in your workplace. I I talk about it, not necessarily intimate relationships, but it's applicable into all kinds of relationships, personal and professional, because ultimately... We're playing out over and over our earliest relationships that um, have occurred in our lives, trying to make sense of unfinished business, things that have happened and trying to change the story so we can learn a lot about ourselves through the conflicts we have in in our relationships. So you can read up on that on Hacking Narcissism on Substack or reach me through uh, my website at drnataliemartinek.com. And Instagram, do you have Instagram or anything like that? Could they reach you? I do. Yeah, thank you. I'm the narcissism hacker on instagram and you can just look up my name on twitter i'm there i've been lots of places yeah great i always say to everyone whatever rooms i'm in in social audio or on social media it's the law of actions everyone so if you do uh, resonate with this do reach out to the wonderful dr nathalie on those channels and she will definitely put you in a better position so i want to thank you ever so much for all your time and dedication